Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Alan, and I'm glad that you guys are here. We're in a lesson series called The Storyteller. And what this is about is it's about the parables of Jesus. Jesus taught in parables. They were simple stories intended to teach profound truths. And what we've been doing all year long is we've been trying to go back and take a fresh look at Jesus. Who he is, how he treated people, and the things that he taught. And what we want to do is we want to look at these parables, see what he taught, look at them with fresh eyes, and see if we can learn anything new with the intention of applying those teachings to our lives. So we view Jesus as our master. Christianity is based on being like Jesus. So it just stands to reason the better we understand him and what he taught, the better chance we got at pleasing him and doing what he wanted us to do. So now this morning, we're going to be looking at a lesson we're calling Lost Things. Now this comes out of Luke 15. We are going to be looking at an entire chapter in the Bible this morning. And I'm going to try to do this in the shortest amount of time possible without um, skipping anything important. Now, Luke 15 is one of the most popular passages, one of the most popular chapters in the Bible. And it actually, towards the end has what is arguably the most famous and well-known of all of Jesus' parables. Anybody want to guess what's in Luke 15 there? The parable of the prodigal son. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anybody here who hasn't heard of the parable of the prodigal son? Fantastic. So I don't really have to preach that part of it, right? Because you guys already... That'll just mean you get to lunch quicker, so you should agree. What's, what's the parable of the prodigal son about? It's about the prodigal son? <laughs> it's a trick question, right? It's a little bit like asking you, who's buried in Grant's tomb, right? Well, it should be Grant. What if I told you that the parable of the prodigal son isn't primarily about the prodigal son? What if I told you that? I think it's not primarily about the prodigal son. In fact, I think Jesus tells us exactly what it's about whenever he begins the lesson. I believe it's up there on a slide. Luke 15, verse 11. You want to show that? This is what Jesus said when he introduced the parable. He said, and a man had two sons. So what's the parable of the prodigal son about? A man who had two sons. How in the world did we come to know it as the parable of the prodigal son? Did you know that the word prodigal isn't even in the passage anywhere? I take that back. There is one translation that uses the word prodigal. It's the New King James Version, and it uses it whenever it says that he wasted all of his wealth, all of his inheritance, in prodigal living. Does anybody even know what prodigal means? I would have told you prior to studying this out that prodigal meant lost. That's what I thought it meant. Prodigal means wasteful. So how did we come to know this, this parable about a man who had two sons as simply the parable of the prodigal son? What's that? We're all very wasteful. I'm not disputing the truth of that. I, uh, I mean, I, I could probably think of lots of ways that I'm pretty wasteful in my life. I, I don't know either, but I'll give you a suggestion. A possibility, and I think it's a strong possibility. Whenever we read this parable, I think we tend to identify with the prodigal son. 
I think so much so we, we tend to read ourselves into the story. We tend to see our lives in his lives. Because most of us know what it's like to waste what God's given us. And then to come to the end of ourselves and repent and turn around and come to Jesus. Come back to God. Come back to the Father. And if you don't know what I'm talking about there, man oh man. I'm hoping that you find out what that's about because it's good in the Father's house. But see, now, this raises the real point that I think that we're going to be dealing with today. Point of view. I think because we so much identify with the prodigal son and see ourselves in him, that we tend to read that parable from his point of view. And so we see it as a story about him. I think we do that with the other two parables that are in Luke 15. See, point of view will change radically how you look at anything. Point of view will determine what you see. That makes sense, point of view, right? George Carlin. You may here know who George Carlin used to be. Used to be because he's dead now. He was a comedian. George Carlin once talked about this problem. He says, yeah, you see a woman. She's got a cat. Cat's got a mouse. The woman goes, oh, isn't that cute? Look at him play with the mouse. Bull! Mouse don't see it that way. (laughs) Point of view will radically change how you see things. In this this chapter, we're going to be looking at some lost things. What you see as being lost, how you understand what was lost and what's going on, is really going to be shaped and determined by your point of view. And see, I think what our goal has got to be has got to be to see things from God's point of view. And how often do we mess up simply because we choose to see things from our point of view? It's like we have this worldly way of looking at things, but God is calling us to look at it from heaven's perspective, from his perspective. Okay, so let's get into this and, and start seeing what we can find. Luke 15, 1-2. Now, if, if you guys were here the last time I spoke and we talked about the parable of the banquet, there are some serious similarities between Luke 15 and what was going on in Matthew 21 and 22. It starts off with some antagonists. In the parable of the banquet and the lead up to that, it was with the, the Sadducees, well, actually a group of, of chief priests and elders who really identified themselves with the Sad, as Sadducees. And these were known as political groups. Just like today we have political groups, we have Republicans and Democrats and Tea Partiers and so forth. Well, in Jesus' day, politics were religion and religion were politics. And they had political parties just the same as we have today. Now, if I were to ask you in our culture, who is the party of the people? Who identifies themselves with with the working man? Which one of the parties? Which would you say? The Democrats, that's their reputation. Is it true or not? I don't know. You be the judge. I'm not a political kind of a guy. Who is the, the, the elite, the aristocracy, the big money people party? The Republicans. Okay. I only say that to say this. The Sadducees that we dealt with when we looked at the, the parable of the banquet, they would have been seen like the Republicans. They had all the money. They were elite. There were fewer of them. They had a lot of power. These Pharisees and scribes who we're going to hear about today that are the the antagonists in this chapter, they would be looked at roughly as the party of the people. The Pharisees were more, there were more of them, and they were more closely affiliated with the working man. The scribes were kind of buddies with them because the scribes were kind of like constitutional lawyers. Now, none of this is exactly one for one, but I'm just trying to kind of give you a little bit of of a flavor of what was happening here. So the Pharisees and the scribes were very zealous for how to do church right. 
they were, the scribes made their living out of telling people the rules, interpreting the scriptures to say, you're right, you're wrong. That's the crowd that now approaches them. By the way, as far as chronological order, this that we're going to read about in Luke 15 happens before what happened when we dealt with the chief priests and elders with the parable of the banquet. But I think there's a lot of similarities between these two. Some of the very same issues are still at play. And so these antagonists, the Pharisees and the scribes, are going to go after to try and prove that Jesus is a fraud. And Jesus is going to respond to them and expose them through three parables. And I don't know why he does it this way, but he seems to do this more than once. He tells the same truth, teaches the same thing, three different ways in back-to-back session. The first two are a little simpler. The third one starts out saying it a third time and then goes a little bit further. We saw that the last time when we looked at Matthew 21 and 22. So, now that you've got the background here, let's get into it. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him, that is to Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now that may lose a little something for us, because good meal and I'm likely to eat with anybody. But in their society, eating with somebody showed acceptance. It showed that I'm, I'm embracing you. I'm accepting you. So now who are these tax collectors and sinners that are causing so much of a, of a stink with the Pharisees and, and the scribes? Well, tax collectors were looked at as just about the lowest form of life around. You've got to remember, this was an occupied country. The Jews were invaded by the Romans, and the Romans had encampments and they they were an occupying force. So then the Romans would say, okay, well, since we occupy you, we want to get money out of your people. We're going to collect taxes. And what we'll do is we'll put it up for bid who wants to be the tax collector for us. We're going to tell you how much money we want to receive. We're not going to tell you how much money you get to charge. And so they would actually bid out the job to different local people that were of that country. And so there were Jews who said, uh... I'd like to be the high bidder. And so the way they were viewed as ever, by everybody else was not only is this person a traitor working for the enemy to, get out, to take money from us, to give it to people that are oppressing us, they're going even further that way and they're taking food out of our kids' mouths. This was not a rich nation like us. These people were by and large impoverished and tax collectors were ruthless. Would you like a tax collector? The way I just described it? Probably not. So here's the problem. They're seeing Jesus as a rival. They see him as competition. The Pharisees and scribes thought that the, that the Sadducees, that they were competition. They saw the Essenes, which aren't mentioned, as, as competition. They saw these, and they see Jesus becoming kind of a rock star. And he's claiming to represent God. But the people that are forming his constituency, the people that he's welcoming into his party are the worst people in the world. These people do not deserve, in their viewpoint, their point of view, the way that the Pharisees and the scribes are looking at it, these people deserve to go to hell. If ever anybody deserved to go to hell, it's these people. What they do not deserve is to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. So therefore, if Jesus was legitimate... He would know who these people are. He would know that they deserve to be punished, not rewarded. And he wouldn't allow them in his party. So they were grumbling. And they were telling people, this guy's a fraud. 
Look at the quality of his disciples. Look at the quality of the people that are following him. That should just prove it. Okay. Have you ever seen a Christian get mad when someone repents and gets baptized? Have you? I have on a few occasions. It's not a pretty thing. You guys remember the name Jeffrey Dahmer? Yeah, that guy died in 1994 and we still know who he is. Who was he? Those of you that are younger, you may not recognize the name. This guy truly was evil. I mean, I don't think there's any question about it. He was from Wisconsin. He killed 17 men. He ate some of them. He was a cannibal. He was found out. He was put in prison. While he was in prison, he got to thinking about it and he thought, I wonder if Jesus is real. And so he reached out to somebody who sent him a Bible correspondence course. And he started to study the Bible. And he came to the conviction that Jesus is actually Lord. He came to believe the things that we believe. And he also realized... I am on the wrong side of this. I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to be punished for my sins. But I really want to switch sides. I really want to leave the dominion of darkness. And if Jesus will welcome me in, I want to serve him with the rest of my life. Even though I'm always going to be in prison, I want to do that. And a preacher came to him and confirmed, yes, this is what I understand. Baptized him for the remission of his sins. And just a couple weeks later, as I understand it, he was murdered. I think he was beaten to death with a, with a mop handle. He was killed in prison. Well, most of us found out about his conversion to Christianity about the same time that we found out that he had been murdered in prison. And I don't know, how many of you guys remember all of the, the Christians being in uproar? How many Christians? Not all of them. But many Christians were in a big uproar. And I heard them saying things like, if Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven, well, they might as well let Adolf Hitler and the rest of them in too. They don't deserve to go to heaven. If ever there was anybody that deserved to go to hell, it would be Jeffrey Dahmer. And it would be totally unfair of God to allow Jeffrey Dahmer or Adolf Hitler or Genghis Khan or any of these guys into heaven. Why do I tell you that story? Whose point of view do you think they were looking at Jeffrey Dahmer with? A worldly point of view? See, a worldly point of view focuses on what people deserve or don't deserve. It shows contrast. But we, when we look at things through our eyes, do you have a problem with looking at some people as deserving what they get? Do you see some people as, well, they deserve that misery that they're in? They ask for it? I'm bringing this up because that is the same lane that the Pharisees and scribes were in. Jesus is talking about lost things in this chapter. What do you think the Pharisees and scribes had lost? I would suggest that they lost God's point of view. See, when people are lost, we shouldn't be thinking in terms of they don't deserve to be found. I think what we should be thinking is God deserves to get back what he lost. See, Jesus is going to teach these three parables here. I think he's trying to change their point of view from what was lost to who lost it. This is a problem that I think that exists not just in the first century with this group of Pharisees and scribes. I believe this problem is present in this congregation. In fact, I think it's at the root of most of our problems. We don't see things God's way. And so we see it from a different perspective. We get competitive. We get jealous. And we focus in on what we deserve. 
How many fights really come down to I'm not getting what I deserve? How many sins really come down to I don't see that the way that God does? Anybody here like to eat roadkill? I passed a nice fluffy possum on the way in. I think a crock pot, some potatoes, onions, let it cook down and soften up. That could be great. Anybody want to come for lunch? Pressure cook at first. Mike has got the whole thing on roadkill cooking. I am not at all turned on by the idea of eating roadkill, and I bet you aren't either. I can see that for what it is, but I have sins. Sins that embarrass me, sins that I give in to, and I don't know why I give in to, and I can guarantee you, you do too. And I can guarantee you that God sees those sins about the same way that you look at eating roadkill. And if we were able to see it from God's point of view, we wouldn't desire it either. This whole thing about looking at things from God's point of view is a very real and present struggle that all of us need to acknowledge and to deal with. So let's look at how Jesus tries to teach them about it. Verses 3 through 7 is the parable we call the parable of the lost sheep. So I think Jesus is going to be trying to change their point of view here. Look how he says it. He told them a parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pastures and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine religious righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus was trying to get the Pharisees and scribes to understand that from God's point of view, the tax collectors and sinners... Were like the shepherd, like the sheep is to the shepherd. They saw the tax collectors and sinners as deserving to go to hell. Jesus saw them as God deserves to get back what he lost, what belonged to him. You with me on that? That's a radical difference in view, isn't it? And it changes everything. So, when the shepherd calls together his friends and his neighbors to celebrate, who's the party for? The sheep? Whose point of view is that? (laughs) Yes, there's only two options. There's (laughs) sheep and shepherd. I'm pausing whenever you don't say shepherd, so yeah, it's shepherd. I think it's the shepherd and not the sheep. I don't think there's anything wrong with being happy for the sheep, but we need to understand something. Because we are so much caught up in this point of view, our point of view, we identify ourselves again with the sheep. Why do shepherds own sheep? Because they couldn't afford a lawnmower, and so they're grass control. <laughs> you know what? I can work with that. <laughs> the, the shepherd owns the sheep for his purposes, right? Whenever your natural inclination is to see this as about, okay, the party is for the sheep, it's as though you think that the idea behind a shepherd having sheep is he wants to privilege the sheep. That he's there for them. That the party is for the sheep. And so now the sheep, who was probably going to be eaten by a wolf, his condition has now been so improved because the shepherd's going to take him home and he's going to get to frolic in the soft grass. 
And he's going to get to have, the, and he's going to get to find the perfect spouse and have little baba bas, and they're going to just have this wonderful time. And then he'll die peacefully in his sleep someday along the line, way into old age, having enjoyed nothing but green pastures and still waters. I don't think that's the image that Jesus wanted to get across. As far as I understand, now I'm not a shepherd, uh, not, not, not a sheep. I don't know the job, but I think the idea behind a shepherd having sheep was he had them because he made a living off of them. He had a purpose for them. So whenever he saves the sheep, I don't think he's going to have a party for the sheep. In fact, I think he's, he may choose to breed the sheep to increase his herds and increase his, his flocks. The sheep may not mind that part. But what about shearing? He may shear the sheep and sell the wool. Again, for his purposes. Eventually, he's probably going to take that sheep to market. And no doubt, he'll be used in their culture either as a sacrifice or for somebody's meal. He may even eat the sheep himself. I don't think the party was for the sheep. Why does the shepherd, what does the shepherd want his friends and neighbors to do? Rejoice with him. Isn't that what it says? I think the party was for the shepherd. He's telling us about what it's like whenever a person repents. He's telling us how God sees a sinner who repents. It's not like he's less happy for the 99, but in that moment that he gets back what was lost. And that's what he says. I've got back what I lost. I found it. I've got it back. And God has a party. And he wants everybody else to have a party with him. So let me ask you this, whenever you go to a baptism, who are you happy for? Yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong, I think, with being happy for the one that repents or for their family. But I think we've got to be careful. See, sometimes, how many of you have been taught Jeremiah 29, I think it's around verse 14. God, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. And you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so we've taught people around here for years and years, God has got a plan for you. He's got a purpose for you. So far we're right, right? His plans are to prosper you and not to harm you. His plans are to give you a hope and a future. All you have to do is seek him with all your heart. Okay, now whose perspective were we appealing to when we have taught that? A lot of times, see, God told that through Jeremiah to a group of Israels who were in exile in Babylon. And I don't think he was telling those guys, listen, when you seek me with all your heart, I'm going to give prosper you the way that you think you're going to be prospered. I don't think he was saying, I'm going to give you the hope in the future that you want. I think he was saying, I'm going to prosper you in the way that I see as prosperous, and I'm going to give you the hope in the future that I have. And I have known many Christians because we had this worldly point of view. We didn't see it from God's point of view. We taught it, and so they thought, okay, well, I'm going to get a big trade up. If I seek God with all of my heart, he's going to give me the spouse I always wanted. He's going to give me the job that I always wanted. He's going to free me from my addictions. He's going to help me with my family. On and on and on and goes. And then they find out that it's not working like that. Many times people come to Christ and they find out they actually find more problems than what they knew they had. Sometimes their own family disowns them. Well... I think that we, what they conclude often is that I must not be seeking God the right way. I must not be working hard enough. 
if I, maybe I can give more. And so they dig deeper and they try to do more and it's not changing and it's not changing and they start feeling like, well, I'm just not ever going to be good enough. Why am I trying? And they give up. And they just figure I'm wolf bait. And they walk away. Some people even determine that the whole thing is a lie because this isn't true. I was told this would be true and it's not true. I think that we need to be careful what we teach people. I think it's okay to be happy for the one who repents and we should be happy for for them to repent but it's not being happy for what God's going to do for them that we should be. I think we're supposed to be happy for them for what God is going to do with them. God has a purpose. We have to kind of go back here for a second and from the last time that I spoke and Hopefully most of you know what I'm talking about here. There is a backstory to Jesus' teaching. The backstory starts in Genesis with the creation of everything and the creation of people. Heaven and earth were in the same place. And God dwelt with men. And men were his partners. He had a covenant relationship with them. They were his partners. And sin entered the world. Men broke. Adam and Eve broke the partnership. And God lost them. And he always had a plan to have a rescue mission to get back what he lost. And so throughout history, he tried to make partnerships with other people so that he could bring back all the others that he had lost. And time after time after time, they would break the covenant and they would abandon the relationship and they would abuse the privilege of even being called God's, God's people. And so he sends Jesus, the one true Israelite who is able to live up to the to the covenant and in him we now have a new covenant that we've been brought into but the mission is still the same it's not about us going to heaven it's not about what the father is going to do for us it's about him paying the price so that we could be qualified to be his partners to help him in his rescue mission and whatever it would cost us to be his partners whatever we might surrender whatever personal satisfactions whatever personal goals It would be worth it. You know why? Because this life is temporary. This earth is temporary. My personal opinion. In Genesis we read the account of how God created in six days everything that we know now. On the seventh he rested. I think God is creating again. A new heaven and a new earth. And in Jesus we get to help with that new creation. And someday we'll go there and it'll be the home of righteousness, we're told. The new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. That is going to be a party. That's going to be a wonderful, wonderful place. At some point you're going to have to deal with in this lesson, how much do you really love God? Your point of view is largely going to reveal who you love the most. If you really love God, then you want to see him get what he wants. And you can trust him, folks, because there is, he defines what goodness is. There is no flaw in God's plan. But for him to use us, we've got to lose our life. I think that's what Jesus said, isn't it? If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. Whenever we take a worldly point of view and we see ourselves as, well, well I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to say no to the things I'd really rather be able to go do, but I won't do those things so that in the end, God will save me and take me to heaven, which I don't know much about, but it sounds a lot better than this. I think we're messing up. 
I think we're missing God's viewpoint. And I think it, it leads us into all kinds of problems. Do you realize what I'm telling you is that we're in the same lane as the Pharisees and the scribes whenever, whenever we have that kind of worldly view? I'm always happy whenever a person comes to Christ. But I'm happy for God. I understand that now. I'm happy because God's going to get to use them to rescue the rest of his lost children. But the one thing I don't tell people is that you're going to love what God does with your life here on this earth. Because I can't guarantee that. I can guarantee you that you're going to love what he does with the new life that you get. And I can tell you from personal experience about 37 years now in covenant with God. I like what he's done with my life here too. Have I gotten everything that I like? No. And you know the truth is, is my life would have been worse if I had gotten everything I wanted. It's only now in my 50s that I have the perspective to say, no, God was privileging me whenever he denied me this. He's even caused me to look at some of my worst sins that got most publicly exposed as something that brought about something that was really good. Illness. My wife has MS. Whenever that bomb hit, I thought, what did I do wrong? Have I not been good enough? Because MS will change your life if your spouse gets it or if you get it. And now I look back on it and say, no, no, no. That was a blessing. Not that I like the realities of a terminal illness or of a critical, I don't think it's terminal. It's, uh, it's not going to go away. And my wife will likely die before I do. It, it, it's known to shorten lifespans. I don't like those realities. But you know what? I've learned more about God through those. Steve, how long have you been working for the master? Close to 50 years? Did you really think that a wheelchair was a privilege? No. If you understand your relationship with God as being about what God can do for you, and you end up in a wheelchair, you're going to start thinking God didn't treat you the way you deserved. It's not about what God does for you. It's what you do for God. He's the one who deserves our service. Steve, have you learned some things about God that have enriched your life that you couldn't have learned without this? Has he used you with people that you would have never been able to be used with? I didn't ask him before he showed up this morning. But I know our Father and I know how he works. I think we need to be careful what we tell people. God is worth serving. He deserves. And if you love him, you want him to get what he deserves. See, we look at the parable of the lost things and we tend to talk about the merits of the sheep and the coin and the son. But I think we're missing it when we do that. I think what Jesus is lobbying for here is we need to talk about the father that deserves, the owner who deserves to get back what belonged to him. I don't think the party was for the sheep. I think the party was for the shepherd. So, let's look on to the next way that he tackles this. It's called the parable of the lost coin. This is in uh, verses 8 through 10. He says, Or what woman, if she has ten coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she found it, she sure does. Yeah. Okay, I got to deal with that. Why? Why would you? You sound like you would search your house for, for a coin. Why? Is it because the coin is, is, is sad and lonely? You got built. You need this coin. You need to use it for your purposes. Thank you. I, I think you just you just caught. I think what Jesus wanted us to catch here. When she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, "Rejoice with me." Who's the party for? The the, the party's for the coin. 
Okay, maybe I should go back and start at the beginning. <laughs> now nah, we don't have enough time, man. We'll be here till dinner if I do that. The party is for the woman who got back what she lost. And, you know, I know we're tempted to look at the sheep and say, but the sheep is in so much of a better place when he's back in the pen. But a coin is an inanimate object. It doesn't have feelings. It's not about the coin. It could care less. It's just a coin. The point of view that I think Jesus wanted the Pharisees to see is that this is about the one who owns what was lost. See, Jesus wants the Pharisees to see how God sees the tax collectors and sinners. Because they didn't see them as having value. They saw those people. This is all about people. Right? Look, look what he, how he finishes it up. He says, Rejoice with me. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, who is it that has the joy that's in the presence of the angels of God? This is that who's buried in Grant's tomb question again. The angels of God. It's probably God who has all the joy. How does God feel about the sinners and the tax collectors coming back home? He's excited. He wants to have a party. Are you excited when people repent? Are you excited for the Father? It depends on how you, what point of view you're looking at it. So when she calls together, the party is for the woman. What does the woman want her friends and neighbors to do? She wants them to rejoice with her. Again, the story is told from the point of view, not from what it was lost, but from who lost it. Okay, so now we're going to deal with what we've known as the parable of the prodigal son. Now remember, Jesus is teaching the same lesson. He's teaching it to the same people. What's their problem? They've lost God's point of view. And he's told these rather simple stories, and he's going to tell this next one, and it's going to have more distractions. It's going to have more details. And there are some juicy details in this one. But he's actually got two sons and he's going to tell two stories. The first part of this parable, he's teaching exactly what we just looked at. He's just saying it a different way. But in the second half, he's going to tell something. He's going to go further than he's gone with the others. Now, because most of you have heard at least one good lesson on the prodigal son, I'm pretty sure that I don't have to tell you why it was what the prodigal son did was so bad. I think that we can even understand it, even though we don't understand all the details, maybe. Maybe we haven't, can't unpack what it meant that he asked for his, his inheritance right away, or what it meant that he ended up feeding pigs. I mean, that's kind of a problem if you're a good Jewish boy, feeding pigs. I, I, I think all those details are there to exaggerate and draw our focus into the response of the Father. And I think it's there to tell us, this is a Father worth loving. This is a Father worth serving. Let's look at how he goes about teaching this. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided the wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. That's where that word prodigal, you'll find it in the New King James Version. Not loose living, but prodigal living. Most of us wouldn't understand what prodigal meant. But verse 14, he says, Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. Okay, I'm gonna, I will stop here for a second. 
this kid takes property from the father. That's, that's what this would have been. The father's got a business. Fields. We're going to find out that whenever we see the older son, he's out working in the fields. Why does a man have fields? He wants to grow a crop of something. He wants fruit out of this field. The son says, I want my inheritance, which is like saying, I wish that you were already dead because I could have what you're going to give me. The father gives it to him. He actually parts it up to both boys. And then he squanders it. And he ends up feeding pigs. The man that he's working for cares more about the pigs than he does about the man working for him. There's a famine going on, which means he's in a place where nobody can help him. The pods, I, I didn't know what these pods were, so I looked it up. They're like these big, long seeds. I think it comes off of a carob tree. They still use these things. They actually sometimes use these, these pods as a substitute for cocoa. It's got a little sweetness in it. It's still mostly for feeding animals. The man who owned the pigs cared more about the nutrition and the health and the welfare of the pigs than he did of the boy. If you're a father and your child is being treated that way, how do you feel? See, now right now, at this point in the story, the Pharisees are going, serves him right. How audacious. Nobody says to their father, give me my inheritance now. Nobody. The father's a bit of an idiot to give it to him. But it serves him right. That's what they're thinking. And then Jesus comes back with this. He says, now when he, uh, he says, uh, verse 17, when he came to his senses... What he means is when he came to God's point of view, when he changed his point of view, he saw things differently. See, before he didn't love his father much, and he certainly wasn't looking at things from the father's point of view. He was looking from his own point of view. He thought he deserved to have his inheritance now. He thought he deserved the freedom to go and do what he wanted to do. And then he comes to himself. When he comes to his senses, he changes. He abandons that point of view and he gathers another one. Look what happens here. He says, uh, uh, where am I at? Yeah, 17. When he came to his senses, how many, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. What is drawing the boy back to the father? Is it the fear of punishment? Jesus made this story up. And he wanted to tell us what he thought repentance looked like. He could have said anything. He told us repentance looks like this. You change your point of view. And it's not a point of view of, hey, I'm afraid of being punished. It's a point of view that... My father would treat me better even if I was just one of his workers than what this guy is. I'm working for a guy right now who's only raising pigs, which is an unclean animal. My father was growing something that was worth, that was good, that would feed people in a better way, in a healthier way they would have viewed. He changed his perspective. And how do we know? Because he says his plan is not to say, man, I'm so miserable, will you take me back? His plan is to say, father, I've sinned against heaven. All sins are first against God. But I've also sinned against you. He changed his perspective. He realizes the father didn't deserve to be treated this way. How do you look at your sin? Do you just hate the consequences of it? Or do you realize that your father doesn't deserve to be treated that way? Point of view. 
will tell how you really look at things. It will also tell you who you really love. This boy learned to love his father. He says, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He does not expect God to reinstate him. How many people have you known that, okay, I blew it? This happens a lot in marriage, doesn't it? I've sinned, but I won't do that anymore. Now, why are you still holding it over my head? Why can't I come back into the house? He expects to be, he doesn't expect to be reinstated. He says, I'm not worthy. That looks like repentance, I think. From Jesus' point of view, it must look like repentance. He says, make me as one of your hired hands. So he got, got up, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion for him. What does this tell you about how God looks at sinners? Apparently, the father is looking for him. Now, the Pharisees would have been over the moon with this. What an idiot. This kid is getting what he deserves. But Jesus wants him, them to see things from the father's point of view. How do you look at sinners? Do you look at them with compassion? Are you trying to find them? Are you trying to see them? Tell you something about your point of view this morning. I, there's more to say on this. Let's just keep looking. Uh, his father had compassion for him, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Jewish dads don't run. It's like a rule. It's like not on a napkin either. It's like a hammer and a chisel. They, you don't run. It's undignified. This father, so this just is over-the-top language for these Pharisees. They think this father is an idiot. Because he's running to this rebellious child that deserves to be punished, and he's kissing him and embracing him and showing him acceptance. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's trying to go through the spiel that he had worked up. Right? He's trying to say, I have changed the way I look at things. And it's, you almost read into this that the father isn't even hearing what he's saying. Because he kind of cuts him off and he says to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe. The best robe was a sign of position. He's going to reinstate this kid. He's not going to make him a hired hand. He sees him as his son. He's going to give, put a ring on his finger. That was probably a signet ring. A signet ring was something that carried the authority of the, the, the man who's signet. So it's like I could buy on credit. I carry the weight and the authority of the person whose crest this represents. So he's giving him some authority. And then he's going to put sandals on his feet. See, in their day, slaves were the only ones that went around barefoot. He puts shoes back on this kid to say, you're a free man. Now, when did the father do all this for the son? Was it after the son proved that he was really genuinely sorry? Was it after the son pledged, I'll never do it again? Okay, let me ask you. When do you accept your brothers and sisters who sin? Because I've seen it far too often in this church where we are so skeptical that we require people prove to us that they've repented before we'll cut them any slack at all. Whose viewpoint does that represent? A worldly viewpoint. Folks, I think we're in the Pharisees and scribes lane a little too often. 
And it's not going to end well for us. If we're going to be Christians, if we're going to take serious what Jesus taught, we've got to deal with the reality that we have to change our point of view from the selfish one that we're so natural with, from the worldly one that comes so easy, that, that keeps records and takes notes as to how I compare you versus how, how I treat you, or how you're treated, I should say, versus how I'm treated. How many of the, the squabbles and the faults or the fights that, that happen in this congregation at some level come down to I'm not getting what I deserve? That's not God's point of view that you're looking at that situation with. How many husbands and wives? Your problem is, is you're saying you're not treating me the way that I deserve. Who do, if your point of view reveals something about who you love the most... What are you learning in that situation? If all I'm worried about is my point of view in an argument. And the answer is not, oh, okay, well, I'll just give it up and look at it from my spouse's point of view. No, they're a sinner too. I think we're supposed to look at it from God's point of view. Husbands and wives, this is for free. I'm sorry, I hope I don't go too long because of this. Would you bring your Bible and come up here real quick, Michael? Come on. This is what happens most of the time in, in fights in marriages. This is not a Bible for the sake of our illustration. This is whatever we're arguing about. Okay? And he's, he's the wife in this situation. <laughs> you can tell I'm, I, I look for character and not beauty. But anyway. <laughs> so tell me if this doesn't happen to you. You're arguing about this. I'm on this side. He, she, is on that side. And we argue about who's right. And I, I'm trying to convince you to see it my way. Which, by the way, Jesus says the way you treat people is how they're going to treat you, right? So what he, what's he she going to do back to me? Try to get you to see this side. He's going to try to get me to look at it from his point of view. How's that working for us? Has that ever worked successfully for anybody? Sometimes you can batter the other person into a position of surrender, but it doesn't mean they've switched their point of view. Now, let's look at it a different way. Let's put this over here, and God's on the other side of that. And we're trying now to talk about how does God see that? What's happened to me and him? Her. <laughs> yeah, we might go to bed early tonight, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm uncomfortable too, buddy. If there had been a girl in the front row, I'd have probably done that, but you were there. so. God's point of view is critical to our actually being able to find what he's got in mind. If we can't see things from his point of view, we're going to get lost a lot. We're going to take a lot of wrong roads. And we're going to be focused on what we deserve, not what he deserves. And we're going to lose sight of the most important thing of it all. Do you realize that in these three parables, Jesus is reinforcing the idea that this is a rescue mission? See, we get so busy talking about coins and sheep and sons that we forget that God's got a rescue mission for us to do. And we get locked into what one deserves over the other. How bad that kid was. What he deserved was to be punished. And we forget that God's got a rescue mission and he deserves to get his children back. If you ask me, I think that's what it's all about being in the new covenant. When you were born again, you were born into the kingdom of God. 
That's how you get citizenship in the kingdom of God. You publicly declared through your baptism that I have switched sides. I am no longer going to be in the dominion of darkness. You may not have even understood that that's where you were. I'm not going to be there anymore, which means I'm not loyal to it anymore. It has no claim to me. And you've been transferred into the kingdom of the son he loves, into the kingdom of light. You have citizenship over here, and you are born again into a nation at war. What's the war about? It's a rescue operation. The rescue of God's children is not for the professionals. It's not just for the preachers or the small group leaders or the teachers. It's for every child of God. That's how I think he sees it. What do you think? What do you think about how he sees it? I'm sorry, I I got off my text here just a little bit. Let's come back to it. When the father calls for the banquet to celebrate, by the way, when he he has this fatted calf, a fatted calf has been raised for a special occasion. They don't have just a whole bunch of these. It's a special occasion. This is a banquet. What did we talk about the last time we got together? A banquet. Who's the party for? If Jesus wants us to see that he's teaching the same thing all throughout, I have to believe that the party is for the Father. What are the people that comes to it supposed to do? Doesn't he say, rejoice with me? And he gives the reason. This son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The Father's view is, I have back now what I lost. And he is over the moon excited about it. He's happy. And he wants everybody who loves him to be happy with him. Because he's got back what he lost. Is that how you see it? Is that how you see a person who returns from their sin? See, I think we can think about this in in terms of, of the baptistry. But again, what about the one who is not, he's been baptized, he's on this side, but he's blown it. She's blown it. Are you excited about their return? Are you excited for the Father? Who do you really love? I hope I'm making that case clear enough. So now Jesus wants the Pharisees and scribes who've lost God's point of view to understand that God sees the tax collectors and sinners the way that this father sees his lost son. But now he's going to go a little further than he did in the first two parables. Now he's going to talk about the older son. And I think he's trying to make the case for the Pharisees and the scribes to see that God sees them as this older son. Look at how this goes. He says, now his older brother, or I'm sorry, his older son was in the field. So he's working. He's working for the father. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. There's a banquet going on. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf, the one that they were keeping for the special occasion, because he has received him back safe and sound. So what's the older brother's response? He became angry and was not willing to go in. He didn't want to go into the banquet. He didn't want to share the father's joy. Whose point of view is the the older son looking at this from? 
his own from a worldly standpoint, from a worldly point of view, not from heaven's point of view, not from God's point of view, not from the Father's point of view. Uh, And his father came out and began pleading with him. Do you realize that this parable, the father is running out to two sons? We talk about how he ran to the prodigal, but he ran out to to the older son too. I think both of his boys were prodigal. I think both of his boys were wasting some things. And the father pleaded with this kid just as much as he did with the one who was coming back from the far country. And he wants him to come in and have a good time. But the son answers and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you. That word serving you is a special word that means slaving. He doesn't see his father as his father. What does that tell you about what the older son really wanted to be doing? Does this tell us that the older son wanted to be in the field working? He didn't. Thank you so much. He didn't want to be there. He was there because he had to be to ensure his inheritance and his reward. Okay, I'm asking you. Do you see yourself in that kid? Why are you here this morning? Why do you do the things that you do? Is it because you've got a view of Christianity that says, I've got to go to church, and I've got to not get drunk and sleep around, and I've got to not beat my kids and my dog, and then I'll get to go to heaven someday? Which I'm not sure how great that is, but hell sounds really bad. So I'm going to try and get that. If that is your view, you're right in line with the older brother. See, the problem with legalists, well, there's, I don't know how far I can get into this, But legalists are people who focus in on what's right and what's wrong, kind of like the scribes did. And one of the things you'll know about legalistic people is they're always very bitter. The reason why they're always very bitter is because they're always thinking that the people who break the rules deserve to be punished. And if they don't get punished, they feel like that's unfair. Because they would really like to be over here doing this, but that rule prevents them. So they're not breaking the rules, so they should be rewarded. That isn't about love for the Father, guys. It's about love for self. And it will make you bitter and angry with anybody else that marches past those borders and those boundaries, those fences, those rules that you're trying not to step over. This older son has got this in spades. He says, I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. Yeah, you're my boss. And I've done what you told me to do. And yet you've never given me a young goat. So that I might celebrate with my friends. Again, who's he, who's, who's, I think he's more worried about what he deserves than what the Father deserves. How many of you guys are constantly comparing yourself to other Christians and saying, I deserve better or they deserve less? Okay, you don't have to put your hands in the air because I know it happens to most of us. I'm just here to try and tell you, man, we got to work on this. It's time to repent because we want to get out of that lane, don't we? Because I'm telling you, it's not leading any place good. And God deserves you to get out of that lane. He deserves for you to see it His way, not your way. He says, but when this son of yours came, he doesn't even admit or acknowledge that, this, that, the, son of, that the other son is his brother. 
He doesn't even see the son as his brother. How many of you look at the people in the church across right over there? You can see it. If you look past the junky cars and the, and the gas. There's two more churches. Do you see them as your brother and sisters? Do you see sinners as brothers and sisters? I'm not suggesting that they're sinners. I'm pretty sure they got some. If we went to ask, they could probably point them out. <laughs> I'm saying... We all, at the very base level, share with every other human a common father. Or do you tend to look at people as some good and some bad, and, and not even care about certain groups of people? Christians are up in arms over the whole homosexual agenda, and the gay rights, and the gay marriage, and all that other stuff. Do you look at them as deserving AIDS, punishment, Do you look at them as as deserving discrimination? The bigger question, I think, is how does God look at them? I don't know that I always know what God's point of view is on some of these things. But I know this. I better find it out. I was a police officer. One of the things I found out as a police officer is not everybody loves the truth. One of the ways you can tell which police officers love the truth and which ones don't is by how they go after a criminal. Some police officers choose, Jim can back me up on this, some police officers choose, they they think, I know who did it. And so they only look for the evidence that tells them that this person did it. And they'll ignore evidence that leads in any other direction. Do you think they always get the right guy when they do that? Not usually. The better way to find it, to find the truth, if you love the truth, you're going to have to work harder for it. And you're going to have to follow where the evidence goes. Do you love God enough to follow the evidence to figure out what he sees? What his point of view is? Or would you rather just let me tell you? I promise you I'll do my best, but I can tell you this, I'm not right about everything. (laughs) I'm just doing my best. And... I hope that you disagree with me. I'm not inviting... I I, I probably said that wrong. I like it when people disagree with me. I hate it that they don't agree. But I like it that they disagree because it tells me they're thinking. And that's at least a part of trying to search for the truth. You know, do you look for the truth? Are we willing to try and... Because it'll take us work. If we're going to get out of the Pharisees' lane and get into the lane that Jesus wants us in, it's going to take some effort to learn how the Father sees some things. This older son didn't get it. And look at this, what he says. He says, This son of yours, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now, where did this prostitute bit come from? From the older brother's head. Because nothing in Jesus' story tells us that the older brother got involved with prostitutes. What do you th- why would he think his, his younger brother was out with prostitutes? Yeah. I mean, this is just my opinion. I don't know. I can't prove it, but it sounds reasonable. If he was going to break the rules, he'd probably find some chicks. You know? Maybe he wasn't good looking and he had to pay. I don't know. (laughs) 
I don't know. I never figured I had enough money to go that route, so I didn't even try. You know? So, <laughs> we always imagine that, that see, this, this tells me that he thinks that working for God is a drudgery and that he's being deprived of something fun by working for God. And he feels like, I'm getting less than I deserve. And this kid, he's not getting punished like he deserved. He got to go have his fun. When we see it from God's point of view, I'm glad that I became a Christian at 14. Did I miss out on some of the things that people think are fun? Yes, I did. I don't know what it's like to be high on marijuana. I know far too many things that are bad. I won't get into that whole list. But here's the thing. As I've grown to love God and see things a little bit more His way... I'm grateful that he got more years of service out of me. Because he deserves my whole life. I'm happy to give him all of it. He deserves it. I'm not worried about who only gives them the last couple of years of their lives. And how they live for themselves. I don't think that that's... I don't think that's good. I don't think that's good for them. I don't think it's good for the Father. I can only feel that way because I embrace what I think is the Father's view. This older son doesn't get it that way at all. He's feeling like he's getting less than he deserves. And the father says to him, this is verse 31, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. This kid's point of view is so backward that he doesn't see that the father just got back what was lost, and that enriched the son. That enriched him. Boy, how do we do this wrong sometimes? We sometimes get excited about evangelism, which is this rescue mission, but we think that we're building the church. We think sometimes specifically that we're building this church. And because of that viewpoint, which I think is not God's viewpoint, just check me out and see if I'm right or wrong on this. I've looked, I can't find any verse in the Bible that speaks about building a church except for one, and that was the one where Jesus said he was going to build it. What he told us to do was to make disciples. If I understand it correctly, it's not my business where God puts the disciples that I make. He can put them where he wants to. And how often do we give up on disciples of Jesus? We don't try to help them because they go to a different church. Or we think that if we do help them and they do surrender to Jesus, they have to come to this one. I've heard it said to some of our college students before who came to Christ through our campus ministry that we deserve you to stay, to not go home over the summer or not to move after your your graduation because we reached out to you. We showed you the Lord and we deserve you to work in our church to build our church. Whose viewpoint was that? I know the men that said that, and they didn't have a bad, mean-spirited bone in their bodies when they said it, but I don't know that that really represented God's view on the subject. And I think that we've got to be open enough to admit we don't know all the time everything that God would say, but we ought to have the courage and enough love for God to admit it when we're wrong and to search for it till we find it. And I think Jesus is really good at leading people who want to follow him. It's my opinion. But I think it's a pretty strong opinion. I don't think it's just loosely based. He says, We had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and he was lost and he's been found. See, both of the brothers 
both the sons of this parable had the same problem. They looked at everything from their own point of view, from a worldly point of view, and not from God's. And the younger son lost everything because of that point of view. But when he came to his senses, he started seeing things from God's point of view. And he was restored. He found the joy of the father. He started thinking about what dad deserves, not what he deserves. The older brother hasn't lost everything just yet. But he's likely to if he doesn't change his point of view. Do you notice that that Jesus doesn't conclude this story with what the older brother decides to do? He leaves it open. I don't know why he does that. I can guess. Because he's still, it's a a pregnant question for every one of us. Most of us can identify with the prodigal. With the younger son. I think most of us should, at least at this point, if I've done a halfway decent job, hopefully I can get you to identify with the older brother too. And the older brother's got a choice to make. Is he going to hang on to his self-righteousness? Is he going to hang on to this concept of what he deserves and how unfairly he's been treated? Or is he going to change the way he looks at things? Is he going to change his point of view and see it from God's position? See, the older brother... Because he had lost God's point of view, he lost some other things. I think the first one that he lost is he lost his love for the Father. Actually, more than just thinking it, I know it. How do I know it? Because in John 5.42, Jesus said to the same group of Pharisees, I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Now folks, they knew the rules better than anybody. They could tell you what was a sin and what wasn't. They could tell you how to do church. And exactly how you ought to be doing things. You realize that no love for God and knowing all the rules and practicing religion really well go hand in hand in the same bucket. All too often. There's nothing wrong with knowing the rules. The rules help us express love for God. But knowing the rules doesn't mean you love Him. It just doesn't mean. If you you love Him, you'll get to know the rules. But if you know the rules, that doesn't, that's no guarantee that you're going to love him. The older son lost his love for his father, and he also lost his love for his brother. He didn't even see him as a brother. Have you lost your love for people that are lost? Have you lost your love and your compassion for believers who struggle in sin? Whose point of view are you looking at them from? It'll tell you something about who you really love. I'm just after this in my own life. I want to see you the way that God sees you. I want to see me the way that God sees me. I want to see them the way that God sees them. The Apostle Paul talked about what it was like for him whenever he changed how he was looking at him. There's a question. How can you know if you've lost God's point of view? I've got some questions. And I think that they'll help you. They're probably not an exhaustive list of questions, but they're intended to help you at least begin to search this out in your own heart. The first question is, number one, ask yourself, do I try to find out what pleases God? Ephesians 5.10 says, find out what pleases God. Again, it will take effort. You can't just come to a Sunday morning and hear a bald guy babble for an hour and figure it out. You just can't do that. It won't work. 90%, maybe more, of what I say to you this morning is going to evaporate before you get home. 
if all you're in, if, if that's the level of love you have for the truth, I don't think you love the truth very much. You can't just... I don't need to beat that, that drum too loud. Guys, it, it, try, do you try to find out what pleases God? That's going to say something about whether or not you've lost God's point of view. If you're just winging it, I'm not sure you're seeing it the way God does. Number two, do I keep Jesus' commandments? In John 14:15, Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you even know what his commandments are? Do you even know what his commandments are? How can you know if you're keeping them? See, it's got to be deeper than just listening to a sermon. It's got to be you taking responsibility for your walk. You're not going to be okay with God because a preacher tells you you are. You're going to be okay with God when God says you're okay with him. And that's not going to be performance-based. That's going to be, are you going to look at things? Do you want to see it his way? Do you love him? Because you can mess up a lot and still be okay with God. He's never had a problem with sin. Apathy and rebellion, he's never been able to deal with. Do you care enough to find out what pleases the Father? Do you care enough to try and keep his commands? If you don't care enough, if you don't love him enough to do either one of those, you're dealing with apathy. If you know what his commands are and you just don't want to do them, that's called rebellion. And you should understand that God wants to see you. He wants you to see yourself as God running out and begging you, come into the banquet. Change how you're looking at this and come in and celebrate with us. The party is great. Come on in. The third question that you can ask yourself is, do I love people? Like Jesus does. Love is not your feelings, folks. Love is your behavior. How do you treat them? In John 13, verses 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. You can't love people the way Jesus does until you see them the way that Jesus does. Do you understand that? And that's not just the lost ones. That's the strugglers that have been found. But remember, we've been bought. Our ticket has been paid for so that we can be partners with God, so that we can be in the new covenant. That partnership revolves around rescuing the others that are still lost. God's point of view will change how you see yourself and others. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 18. I'm going to use the NIV for this one because... In this one case, I think that it actually handles it in a way that I can use better. Paul said, so from now on, we regard no one from, look at this, a worldly point of view. What was Paul's life like whenever he regarded people from a worldly point of view? He decided which ones deserved God's attention and which ones deserved punishment. And he didn't think that Christians deserved God's rewards. And so he thought they deserved God's punishments and he decided to be the one to help dole it out. He didn't have love for those people. He says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. At one point, Jesus, Paul thought Jesus was a fraud. He looked at him with worldly eyes. He said, but we don't do that anymore. We don't look at Jesus that way anymore. We don't look at people that way anymore. And he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's talking about Christians. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. 
then the new creation has come. Paul said that he doesn't even view himself as the man he was before because he's a new creation. He's been created new and new with a new purpose. From a worldly standpoint, what do you think his purpose in life was? Be a good guy. You know, pay my taxes, raise a family. The things that we would normally go after with a worldly point of view, I would think. But he says, no, I see that differently now. I see it without a worldly point of view. From a godly point of view, I see that I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We don't deserve to be members of this new covenant. There was an old covenant with Israel and they butchered that thing. They disregarded it, they rebelled it, and they lost their partnership with God. And so through Jesus, we've got a new covenant, a new partnership. And the only way that we can get in on this covenant is through the price that he paid. We can't get there any other way. And he says... He reconciled us to himself through Christ. There's that rescue ministry working for us. And then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Folks, if you don't see yourself as a minister of reconciliation, then you don't see yourself the way God sees you. If you're a Christian, you have the ministry of reconciliation. You're the one. Me too. But you don't hire a preacher to do the job. You don't wait for somebody else in your small group to do it. You've been given the task of rescuing. Does God deserve to have back what he lost? How do you see that? Does God deserve to have you work for him? How do you see that? What will it cost you if you go out and get involved in this ministry of reconciliation? Everything. Everything. You won't take the vacations that you want to take. You won't own or drive the cars that you want to own and drive. You may not get to dress the way that you want to. All these things are in question. Because when you lose your life, you save it. Didn't Jesus say that somewhere? When you lose your life, you save it. This is the short side of our existence. The better one is coming. Do we want to help God in that new creation? I think he deserves whatever we would sacrifice. I think that's what Paul said. So how else can you know if you really see things from God's point of view? I think the slide says, are you willing to help God get back what belongs to him? I think I would tweak that and say, are you helping God get back what belongs to him? The reason why I think that might be different is, I think we can tell ourselves we're willing and never move. My question is, is are we doing it? Are we helping God get back what belongs to him? If you're not, if you haven't been looking at it like that, can I beg you to change your mind? We call that repenting. If you just try to change your behaviors without changing your mind and what you think, your behaviors won't change for long. I'm hoping to persuade you the way I think Jesus was trying to persuade the Pharisees and the scribes to change what you see, to change how you think, to change how you feel. If you do that, I believe you're going to do things differently. And you're going to start seeing opportunities to rescue the lost come your way in ways that you've never seen it before. Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up. Now usually when we do these lessons on Sunday morning, we ask people to respond to the lesson by filling out a response card. And I'm pretty sure that your bulletins this morning still have that response card and you can do that. 
But if you notice, I, I, I held off on doing the Lord's Supper. We normally do the Lord's Supper a little bit earlier, but I really think we can use the Lord's Supper this morning as a way to respond to this lesson. See, I think... Let's look at what, what Paul says about the, uh, about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 29. He says there, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, we can take the Lord's Supper and we can just make it a sacrament. We can make it uh, something, you know, a piece of bread, a little swig of juice, and on to the next song. We can do it rather mindlessly. But we're supposed to do this mindfully. We're supposed to do this intentionally. It's supposed to mean something. And we're supposed to remember that Jesus paid a price. A huge price so that we could be a part of this new covenant. And he says on verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant. See, this isn't just a time for us to think about our sins and, you know, we don't have to go to hell. This is a time for us to look on the covenant again. To reaffirm the partnership that we have with God. That's what these, these emblems represent. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he, come, th- until he comes. That word proclaims means preach. What I'm telling you is, is this is not just some private between you and God thing that we're doing here. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're proclaiming that you believe something. You're proclaiming that you've accepted something. I believe from what I'm reading here that you're proclaiming that I am in on this new covenant. And all that that implies. That I am willing to surrender my point of view and look at things from God's point of view. And I'm willing to to dig and to try and find out how God sees things. And I am in it to get God's kids back. I'm in this for what God deserves. This isn't just about me anymore. Look what else he says. He puts a warning in here. He says, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You can do more harm by taking this if you don't believe what we just talked about. You can do harm to yourself and you can do harm to other people. Nobody's going to have their eyes closed. We're doing this in a public way. I'm hoping that if you're in it, If you're in this covenant, if you're willing to see God's purposes and allow him to use you to rescue the lost, then you need to let other people see you take this. If you've lost God's point of view, but you want it back, if you're not even sure how God sees things, but you want to, celebrate with us. Recommit to this covenant. Recommit to this partnership. Let's celebrate that together. But if you're not there yet, if you haven't decided what I'm telling you is right or wrong, if you're not sure that you want to be a minister of reconciliation, if you're not sure that you want to surrender all your rights and let Jesus have those to do with whatever he wants to with it, would you do yourself a favor and let this pass you by? I'm not telling you what you can or can't do. And I'm not going to judge you 
for whatever you decide to do. But these emblems are about the covenant. These emblems are about us pledging ourselves, celebrating that we even get the choice to pledge ourselves to God's purposes. I'm going to pray, have the worship team join me. We're going to sing a couple songs while we take this. And guys, I, I hope that you'll, you'll do this with a sincerity of heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise your name. Uh, we want to take these emblems this morning in a way that pleases you and that proclaims that Jesus paid the price for us to be in a covenant relationship with you. Father, I pray that you'll help us to take more seriously what it means to be in a covenant with you what it means to be your partner that Father you've got lost children that you want us to see them the way that you do Father that you want us to see our brothers and sisters who struggle and who succeed the way that you do Father we need to learn how to walk in your ways we need to learn how to see things your way and Father we struggle with it We're, we're we're not great at it none of us have arrived but you change us you work within us you give us grace to teach us to say no to ungodliness and father we don't deserve that grace but we can celebrate the fact that you've you've given it to us anyway so father I pray that you'll help us as a people to be more like you to see things your way and to help you get back the things that you've lost we love you and we celebrate in Jesus' name Amen